folks, and welcome to the Sense and Theory podcast, where we cut through the bias and extremism in order to try and avert a civil war in the United States. Sense and Theory, save the world. I'm Sense. And I'm Theory. And today we're going to try to save the United States from a uncivil war. <laughs> well, we'll we'll do our best. I'm I'm not sure if it's if it's quite all that, but uh, we have seen in the last week, especially spinning out of that whole immigration debate that we talked about on the last episode, um, uh, renewed uh, calls for incivility and, and the, the furthering of the divide between mm-hmm. the two sides. And it really is. I mean, we say fever pitch a lot on this show, but it, it's it's working its way up there. You know, I, I liken it almost to when, you know, when you're boiling a lobster and the temperature's rising slowly and slowly. Well, we went up a few notches in yeah, the last absolutely. week. I don't think there's any question about that. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's something that's been a threat on this show uh, pretty much since day one. But I think its importance is really starting to intensify because there's no common ground left anymore for Mm -hmm. the two sides to have a rational conversation about almost anything. Yeah. uh, I don't think that there's no topic that we are approaching um, in terms of, of compromising and coming to a solution at all from, from, you know, gay rights to, to abortion, to immigration, um, you know, pretty much across the board. Yeah. yeah. Um, We are stuck in this fight the Nazi mentality Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we're gridlocked, man. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really disheartening to me because, you know, if you think back, what well, is 10 years ago, 2008, we have the financial crisis and out of that comes Occupy Wall Street and, you know, Occupy Wall Street was, was kind of awesome, man. It was, it was white folk, black folk, uh, men, women, left, right, you know, all these people united in their their anger, you know, at the the major corporations and the government. They felt like they Big were banks. underserved. The bailouts, the golden parachutes, they enough is enough. You know, everybody was fed up and there was a unity there. But you started to see little cracks because like the definition of the one percent started started getting a little muddy and it started getting a little wider to me in places, you know, but it was still we were still unified. Mm -hmm. So you have the Tea Party that kind of spins out of that on the right. That was sort of the uh, what would you call it? The, The heir to the Occupy movement on the right. And it started out with ideals very similar to Occupy. But rapidly, it it just kind of petered out into obstruct Obama at all costs. Uh-huh. And, you know, I think it's interesting if you remember Obama was giving a State of the Union address and one of the one of the Tea Party congressmen from the right actually uh, yelled out and told him he was a liar. And and now we look back and we see that, like, that's one of the signposts, you know, on the on the on the way on this road down that we've been going to incivility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Simultaneously, or maybe as a result, whatever you want to call it, uh, the left had their own version of what Occupy turned into, and that was the social justice movement. And, you know, again, at the beginning, there were a lot of very similar ideas to what was going on in Occupy, but it's become more extreme, become more pronounced. It's it's gone farther and down that road. Uh, do you think do you think that, you know, groups like Antifa in a lot of ways sprung out of the Occupy Movement. Well, I think they've been emboldened. I think Antifa had been around. I think you know a lot of these ideas that are that are on the left, uh, intersectionality, uh, you know, the postmodernism that we've talked about before. Um, those ideas have been around for quite some time. But yes, they became emboldened and they kind of meshed 
with that energy that came out of, you know, Occupy Wall Street. And the same mm-hmm. thing on the right. Libertarianism is nothing new, right? But it, it got a it got a shot in the arm. You and know? I think it's funny because I expected I was a big supporter of the Occupy movement. I feel like um, you know, bankers, Wall Street, uh, the powers that be, the one percent, if you will, um, have grossly concentrated wealth. I I don't really think it's good for the world. Mm. Um, and and I felt good about the movement. I felt good, yeah. like you said, there was there was unity. Mm-hmm. Um, it was people from all walks of life coming together to approach um, what we all feel like is a very large problem. I mean, we've talked about the disintegration of the middle class for for years and years and years, and I don't think you can ignore that you know that part of the conversation and um, that anger and resentment mm-hmm. uh, being a part of that. So, so my question is like, where did they go? Well, you know, there was a, there was a point where where Occupy was in the news and people were talking about it, and it was on your feed, and then it just kind of petered out. Yeah. Well, we've, it's not so much that it petered out in my opinion, it's that it it fractured and it mutated into other things as it got more specific, you know? So like, again, on the right, it bonded with other ideas and became something else to where we don't even talk about that stuff anymore. And same thing on the left. Mm -hmm. What I think is interesting is I think Obama had something to do with it as well, because remember Obama got elected almost simultaneously with the financial crisis and so in a sense, um, the the hope and stuff that he represented uh, had us put some of that anger from Occupy on pause. You think it softened it a little bit. Right. And but, we had reason to celebrate. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, so we've we've broken some racial barriers and, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're breaking down barriers. It's progress. So that's like a blow off valve. Yeah. Um, in many ways for that frustration and anger. Yeah. But what's interesting is then when you look at all the populism involved in the 2016 election, it's right. But that to me, that was the Occupy Wall Street election. Right. Bernie's talking about wealth inequality. Trump's talking about draining the swamp. And these were the things we were talking about with Occupy. That's, they, right. that's how long it took them to trickle up to the to the main national conversation, really. Yeah. And I think that's that's one of the reasons I think Bernie uh, had so much steam and you've got polls uh, putting him, you know, 12 points above uh, above Trump. And in, in yeah. some cases yeah. um, was because I think that. That resentment didn't go anywhere, mm-hmm. um, but the organization did. Um, you know, the strands that were pulling those people together uh, to speak out disappeared, but the resentment remained, and that's why. Absolutely. And that's why this populist uh, groundswell, uh, you know, stole the election of twenty sixteen <laughs> yeah. for for lack of a better term. Well, you know, you know what's interesting about that. I remember telling friends at the time back during the primaries. Um, that my biggest fear was that Bernie would make it out of the primaries and he would go to the general election. He would get smashed because he was too socialist for mainstream America. Uh And I was afraid that that would cause a, a, the solidification of a left wing tea party that would then obstruct the next president at every turn. Now, true to form of this show, I was completely wrong about the details but I think I nailed the bottom line. <laughs> and now here we are with basically two, you know, I hate with, to keep calling them tea parties, but it's, it's a good little catch all. We have two tea parties. We have two parties that will not, 
they obstruct each other at every turn. That's right. I see what you're saying. And, yeah. and the Dems are on one side going, they're all Nazis. You can't support anything they do. We can't right. even listen to them. Uh, we can't try to come across the aisle because we're going to end up with uh, concentration camps, yep. you know, gassing brown people. And you kick it back. I mean, it hasn't really changed since Obama was in office. The right saying, hey, they're all socialists. Uh, they're going to set up death panels and, and everything. It was the same level of hyperbolic rhetoric that you know what I mean? I mean, really, there's no difference between the two, if you ask me. And we've reached the point where that that divide, that division is the single greatest threat facing the country, because we we can list off other things. Right. We can talk about racism. We can talk about sexism. We can talk about wealth inequality or climate change or any of a number of things. But actually, we can't really talk about them because we're so at each other's throats. We can't ever get to solutions for those problems. That's right. Reasonable conversations have have pretty much stopped happening. There's no reaching across the aisle. Um, every single issue is at the point of no, he's a Nazi. Yeah. You know, it's 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 time to fight. We must. Um, even if it's the same issues we've we've been talking about for decades, the same right. things that have, that have been on the table and. And to be clear, we're not just talking about politics at the national level. Right. Um, you know, a lot of times we focus in on on Trump um, and the election, and that's because it's easy and it's big. But if you think back to our episode on the teacher pensions in Kentucky, mm-hmm. the same thing was happening at a local level. And you had one side going, no, they just hate our kids. They yep. don't want us to be educated. They hate our teachers. Um, yep. When, you know, there, there might be a small ring of truth to that, but overall... Uh, in the history of things, it took 40 years to get us in that pension crisis. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't 40 years of of one side hating kids or hating teachers. Right, you know? right. Um, and, and, you know, I would say the same thing going the other way. You know, just, oh, yes, every teacher is a freeloader who just wants to coast on the, the glorious <laughs> Kentucky State pension plan. You know right, what I mean? Right. So, you know, but the thing is, we've always had disagreements, right? Like, what what makes this any different? I mean, if you kick it back to the 60s, the 60s was about as turbulent as it gets with the two sides angry with each other and, and arguing and stuff. And and so that divide, that's a part of American politics. And we can talk about whether or not that's a good or a bad thing. The problem is, especially, again, spinning off this immigration debate, the ratcheting up has made us wonder what comes next. Mm. And that's what gets dangerous and scary, because now we're moving into a territory that takes it beyond an argument, beyond a disagreement. And we start talking about things like violence and incivility and harassment and that, man, that is the road to destruction. Yeah, you know? I tend I tend to agree with you. Um, I've always kind of felt a tension, um, you know, in that the the Republicans are the bad guys and the Democrats are the good guys fighting for fighting for good and fighting mm-hmm. for for the rights of of every man. And the Republicans are, you know, the evil side, they're Cobra command, you know, yeah. trying to trying to roll back regulations so big business can can <laughs> win. Um, you know, that tension has always been there, but I, I've never seen it yeah. anywhere near uh, where the conversation is right now. And maybe, you know, it's a conversation on Twitter. Um We'll talk about that and whether that's, you know, whether yeah. that's actual reality, but it's not just Twitter. It's at, it's at speeches. It's at rallies. Yeah. Um, it is very much in the, in the public sphere and part of public consciousness and, and growing bigger, you know, right. this idea of good versus evil. So what exactly has me and since spooked? 
right? I, th- I think that's one of the things we have to do is we have to lay out what you and me saw this week and, and the road to freak out that we went down. You know? Right. And like you said, so it starts with the immigration debate. It started with the immigration debate. And I think the immigration debate really, uh, you know, with the separating the families and stuff like that, the conversation around that issue really laid bare how far apart the two sides are. I mean, if, if in my opinion, you have one side that's wanting to protect the border to the point of, of ripping families apart, which, you know, I don't agree with is, is monstrous in my opinion. And then on the other side, it seems like we just want to, you know, open borders, just throw the door open. And I mean, those sides are so far apart that, you know, it's kind of hard to reconcile the two. <laughs> well, you know? it's, it's funny that you would say those sides are, are so far apart because I, I don't think they really are when it comes to the American people. I think the political parties that represent us uh, are very far apart on those issues. But uh, in all the polling, um, they overwhelmingly say that the American people support strong borders, like 60 to 70 percent um, of people polled. Uh, we we overwhelmingly want merit based immigration in you know a reasonable number. We do overwhelmingly want amnesty for kids who who grew up here and you know have have degrees or, or at least uh, finished high school uh, and aren't in prison or in jail. You know aren't criminals. Uh, overwhelmingly, we want these things as Americans. Um, when it comes to the wall, it's not quite as clear. When you ask Americans, do you want a wall? They answer uh, in low, you know, 35s. Yes, we want a wall. When you ask them, for example, uh, there's a a Harvard-Harris poll that's cited and and thrown around often that seems to hold up pretty well. Um, 54% of Americans support building a combination of physical and electronic barriers across the U.S.-Mexico border. So, like, and that's a little contentious. You know, 50-50 is getting close to a divide, but, but we're not... The immigration debate isn't framed as just the wall. No, actually, I'm I'm, I'm glad you said that, and and I, I think you nailed me on that last week too. But that's that's an important point, you know. I mean, I I say the two sides because that's what I see, right? That that's what I see on on Fox's version of what's going on versus MSNBC's version, or that's what I see Salon say versus the National Review, but. What the two sides say, and when I say sides, I'm using air quotes because I don't understand how, like, you know, the audio medium works. <laughs> um, but when I say the two sides, I mean, like, the establishment sides. However, the people, you know, that that can be a horse of a different color. So I think one of the things that we've got to do to understand um, uh, that things may not be as fever-pitched and as at each other's throats as they, you know, are, is to understand that really what's happening is, we're seeing an argument between two rival classes of intellectuals and we're seeing that their partisans, their base, you know, it'd be like the base of politicians. We're seeing them fall lockstep, but then there's this wide swath of America that, that doesn't really go to either extreme. It doesn't go to either of those two places. They do want reasonable answers. I think so. And, and, and I think, you know, we, we nail it home in every episode. Like, how does this affect you? How does this affect you? And here, and here it is, man, your your parties on either side aren't aren't representing you. On one side, um, you've got Trump saying all Mexicans are rapist, you know, MS thirteen criminals, mm-hmm. and on the other side, you say, oh, they're all lovely people, and and we should just let them in in mass and 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 turn the other cheek. And and everyone in the middle knows, uh, in their heart that that those things are not wholly true. Yes, MS thirteen. Yeah. 
comes from Central America. Yes, yeah, yeah. they get into our country. Um, there's something like 10,000 of them in yeah. the country. It's a ridiculously low number. Right. Like no one is getting, there are more people I would wager to say dying in roller coaster accidents than are getting <laughs> murdered by MS 13. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, no, you know, absolutely. fact check me on that being so, but, yeah. um, but my point is that, that the other side, um, is not representing the American people either. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't think people want open borders, right? I don't think we want thousands of, of, people bringing their families and just disappearing into the country. I right. don't think we want that. Yeah. Um, so when neither side is representing us, we all, we all lose. Yeah. Um, and you, and you kind of, you have to wonder why that is. And I think, I think the answer is, is right there. It's because it's, it's not really um, practical, realistic people having a conversation. I, I point back to those two intellectual classes. You reach that level of extremism when you're having an argument in an academic setting or in an intellectual setting. So, you know, if we're at a party and all of a sudden we start, you know, having a conversation about high ideals and stuff, you might find yourself talking about the the pros of fascism, or you might find yourself talking about, uh, after you know, about eight beers, maybe, or, or all of a sudden you're arguing about the downside of free energy. You know, I mean, you, you get to weird places when you're trying to win an argument or make a, a broader intellectual point. And so that's what these people are doing in their, their pieces and their articles on, on Huffington Post, Salon, National Review, or in segments on Fox News and stuff. But, but actual people don't have time for all that crap. You know what I mean? Like actual people have, you know, more realistic concerns and they're not worried about like the high minded ideal part of this or that. And so you see a, a much more reasonable position held by the people at large. Most of the time, there are exceptions, you know, obviously for a large swath of this country's history, Jim Crow was okay. Slavery was okay. I'm, <laughs> right. not, I'm not saying the majority is always right by any means, but I'm saying you have a better chance of going to a random American citizen and finding a position approaching normalcy. Right. Then, then you see with either of these two wild extremes. Yeah. I mean, help bear in mind with immigration that it was a huge issue for the right in the 2016 election, right? Like Trump ran on immigration. That that that's we were reminded continuously of that. But we're reminded continuously of something else. He didn't win the popular vote. And <laughs> bear in mind that this 2016 election was the second lowest voter turnout at 50% since 1996. For real? Half the country didn't vote. <laughs> and of that half, not a simple majority of them were worried about immigration. Right. And a, and a close, close, close election. Right. Like almost too close to call. So uh, I guess in light of that, it's not really surprising to see parties taking an extreme angle because taking an extreme angle allows you to message to those people Mm-hmm. very effectively and yeah. win votes, right? It's much harder. Um, like you said, people have lives. So it's hard to feed them the complicated ins and outs of an issue and say, hey, understand where our position lies. Um, you know, it's here in reality. They, they, they want to read a headline yeah. and, and decide who they're going to vote for and, and go to sleep and wake up and do it all again tomorrow. So yeah. so it's no wonder um, that, that, they're, that the parties themselves are taking this angle to us. Um, I would also say that old adage of divide and conquer makes a lot of sense in this context, too. Mm -hmm. Um, If you can effectively split 
split people into smaller groups, you can message to them more effectively for votes. And I think it's silly of us not to see, um, you know, not to see that happening here. So to clarify, if the rhetoric, if the extremist rhetoric is pushing people away from the polls, mm-hmm. um, everyone sees that. The Dems see that and the Republicans see that. Yeah. If only the extremists end up at the polls, then you don't have to worry about all that difficult gray area of actually coming to compromise. Yeah, all the nuance. All you have to do is worry about winning just enough votes to eke over the line, and then you're able to message to those extremists very well. Mm. Um, and pass pretty much whatever you want. Yeah, I mean, I I see Trump deregulating uh, coal stuff, you know, coal <laughs> regulations that no one in their right mind would ever do. And yeah. I think, and I think very similarly, if Hillary Clinton had come to power, um, we'd see consolidations of corporate power that mm. no one in their right mind would would ever cosign. Yeah. Um, but when you're able to to pose it as in opposition to this extreme, it's mm. real easy to sell. Yeah. And and I think clearly that's at our expense, right? Like those of us who consider ourselves in the center. The 50% who didn't vote at the yeah, very least. Yeah, and, it, and, it, and it's a big portion. But there is something I think, I think we have to address. Like I don't want to raise the specter of the silent majority. And the, and the silent majority was at the end of the 60s, you know, Nixon runs for president and he says, hey, all these rabble rousers out here and extremists, I mean, you know, language very similar to what we're, we're saying today. Um, they don't represent you, the silent majority, the the good God-fearing white Christian folk. You know what I mean? That, that's basically who he was talking to. And that's how Nixon got elected, you know, by resting on the silent majority. Well, I think there is truth to to the fact that the majority of, of the country is in no way, shape, or form represented by either these parties or these extremists. But what happened with the original silent majority in the, in the 70s, where they kind of rolled back under Nixon some of the achievements that we'd made in the 60s, um, isn't, isn't uh, inherent in the silent majority. You know, it doesn't have to be the case. Right. Like, we can move forward and, and find a balanced way. The key is that the silent majority saw what, you know, the, the activists and stuff were doing in the sixties and felt like they had to swing, swing the pendulum all the way back. (laughs) And I don't think that's the key. I think the key is to rest the pendulum in the center. Yeah. Or at least nudge it a little bit, keep it from going quite as far the other way. Or at least not let it swing as wildly. Yes. Right. Not swing as wildly. There you go. Absolutely. So spinning out of that whole immigration debate, uh, the calls from the left of Nazism and, and white supremacy against Trump and his administration have doubled down. They, they've certainly tripled, intensified. Up. Yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, in fairness, I mean, call a duck a duck. I mean, what part of what they're doing there with that, that immigration thing, it, they look like internment camps. Um, but I think the reason that I'm weary, but not, you know, as worried as some people are on the left is because I don't know what else it could look like. Yeah. Like where else, what are you going to, where are you going to place those kids anywhere you place them? It's going to kind of look like an internment camp anywhere you yeah, put those unless families. We're, unless we're building a, you know, a Clarion hotel for them. Yeah. Um, you know, fences, we, we, we built them in response to a rapid influx of, of, of immigrants. Like mm-hmm. you, what, what can you do? You can put up fences quickly yeah. or, or just release them into the country. Yeah. Um, you know, that's always an option <laughs> right, um, right. Uh, well, or, I, or build better facilities. And I think we've seen evidence of some better facilities being built, you right. know, more permanent facilities that are, that are not looking anything like 
uh, internment camps. Yeah. But I, I think the case is made in the fact that, you know, under Obama, I mean, that's where those pictures came from, right? Like, so, so that kind of kicked off the, it's an internment camp was the cages that were, you know, being constructed under Obama. So it does make you wonder why wasn't that Nazism? Well, you know, why wasn't it heavily reported? And I think the reason is, is that we trusted Obama more, or at least those intellectual classes in the media did. Yeah, I think so. And I I think the reason for that lack of trust with Trump is because of all of the other context that Trump gives, right? Obama wasn't saying Haiti is a shithole country. Right. Um, you know, he wasn't saying they're sending their worst and, you know, rapists and, and drug dealers. And um, he wasn't spitting out this, this rhetoric, right. um, this divisive, you know, xenophobic, if you will, rhetoric um, yeah. that wasn't present with Obama. Um, so I do think you have to, take the context of of Trump but at the same time during the Obama presidency I was very aware of of creeping authoritarianism right, right? that was one of my big criticisms of Obama as the king of the executive order mm-hmm. um hell Obama was deporting uh more people than than any president in in history I don't know if yeah. that's if it's actually in history but yeah. um in recent history at the at the very very least I know at least through a period I think at least through as of January of this year, Trump had not exceeded the pace at which Obama was deporting people yet. Well, so, so, so there you go. And, and again, to call a duck a duck, um, you know, he was putting people in those same camps. Granted, he drew the line at, at family separation mm-hmm. and I, and I appreciate him for that. And yeah. I, and I decry, you know, the Trump administration administration for, for crossing that line. Right. Um, but you know, I think there are parts of of Obama that you can place squarely in the authoritarian field. You look at uh, Bonzi Sharma did a, a great thread on Twitter where he compared um, the amount of Supreme Court wins mm-hmm. during different administrations. And during the Obama administration, keep in mind, Obama was a constitutional lawyer. Yeah. Um, Obama lost more Supreme Court cases um, than than any president in the preceding administrations and by mm-hmm. a significant factor. So yeah, Obama was, uh, was like 50-50. Obama was overturned 50% more than the previous two administrations. Yeah, there you and, go. And 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 when you look at the amount of of unanimous mm-hmm. decisions, it's the, the the gap is is wide, right? And what that paints a picture of is even his own appointments were going against his Supreme Court cases. And yeah. that's very telling. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the people he picked to represent his views were saying, whoa, buddy, you've stepped over the constitutional line here. Yeah. So, I, you know, I think there's a strong case to be made there uh, for Obama being authoritarian. Now, when we look at, at Trump, yes, uh, the courts have have walked him back. They walked him back on the travel ban, mm-hmm. um, but not not at the same level, man, yeah. not at the same level. No, you don't you don't have to go very far with me to make the case for authoritarian Obama. I mean, you know, as much crap is we give Trump and we're actually about to give him some more for his treatment of the press. Uh, Obama straight up had a member of the press followed, had his family's phone wiretapped, you know, because uh, the, the guy, he was a reporter at Fox news had reported on something that Obama didn't like. And they, you know, they didn't like being out in the open and uh, you know, they said national security and all that good stuff. But at any rate, wherever you fall on the specifics of that case, the president of the United States 
had a journalist wiretapped and followed. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that is that is far in <laughs> that is far in dictatorship territory. <laughs> I mean, calling fake news fake news is one thing. Calling calling the media your enemy is another thing. But I think to me, as someone who was who was decrying that authoritarianism under Obama, mm-hmm. and now it's turned to a specifically partisan thing with the Nazi dialogue, I worry that we're losing perspective. So when that pendulum does swing back, say the blue wave continues and we get another Democrat in office, that argument's off the table now because we've solved the problem. You know, we've said we've kicked the Nazis out and the authoritarian fascists are gone. Well, buddy, if we get another Obama in, you guys are all going to be quiet and feel like you've won, yet Mm. the same problem is still going to be creeping in uh, through the cracks of our structure. And that scares me. Yeah, well, that scares me, but I think, you know, both of us are, you know, we're looking down the road a little bit there, right? Like, we're worried about, you know, what signal that makes and the repercussions that it can have. And I think the counter to that would be, you know, people on the left saying, but, you know, there's a Nazi in there right now, right? Them them doubling back down on that and being like, well, internment camps are being built and, and uh, housing on military bases are being built right now. Right. Well, I think it's important to highlight uh, the difference, you know, like like what I'm trying to say, like you trusted Obama, so you let those things happen, right? And you don't trust Trump. And I'm going to be honest with you. I don't trust Trump the way that I don't, or the way that I trusted Obama. Um, I'm not mad at the people who are uh, protesting these camps at all in the least. In fact, I, I love what you're doing. I'm really excited that you're trying to hold the president accountable and make sure that he doesn't slip into Nazism. Sure, we need now, that. Now, it's my job. You're, you're trying to keep him honest. In a sense, it's my job to keep you honest. I want to make sure that you don't create that seesaw that, like you said, is going to lead us to an ugly place if the blue wave overtakes us. And to make sure that when you're criticizing him as a Nazi, that you're being honest about it. You're not just making stuff up for partisan gain. When when America works, that's what it looks like. Two sides checking and balancing each other and making sure that the other side is, is remaining honest. That's right. That's right. And, and, and I want to clarify real quick. I, I don't mean to bring up Obama and go, but what about Obama? (laughs) You know what I'm saying? That is not, that is not at all my point here. Um, I'm, I'm just trying to provide some some context um, so we can look at it fairly objectively. Um, you know, maybe you can maybe you can tell me I'm giving Trump too much of the benefit of the doubt. And maybe maybe you're right. Time yeah. will tell. Right. Um, you know, if in if in six years, uh, Trump's still in office and, and he suspends elections. Yeah. Um, God, I'm going to be eating crow, man. Yeah. But but I think it's my duty to to at least point out what I see right now. Yeah. No. And if he starts suspending elections, then yeah, I mean, you know, I'm all for it. There are even, there are places before suspending elections where I would, if he overrides a court decision, Mm. uh, you know, I'm going to have a problem with it. At one point, uh, you know, uh, FDR, uh, the Supreme court handed the decision down against him. And he said, you know, Oh, Gray, or maybe it was Jackson. I don't know. Beans, you're going to have to look me up on that one. But somebody handed a Supreme Court decision against the president to the president, and he was like, cool, let me see him enforce it. Now, wow. <laughs> yeah. If Trump were to do something like that, I would wig out. You know what I mean? I'd yeah, be right there with you. Torches, like- but as, as far as like eating crow later, I have to look at what I see 
and, and, you know, interpret that as honestly as I can. And to this point, other than what the, the, the ancillary things, other than what Trump has said on Twitter, which is a lot of nasty shit. I mean, he's praised Duterte, um, Putin, uh, Kim Jong-un, you you know what I'm saying? It's, but it's, it's a lot of talk. If you look at the actions, um, you know, there's not much, there's not much action behind that unless there's something lurking in one of these criminal investigations. It's absolutely cause to keep him under close and tight scrutiny, but I'm not ready to call him a Nazi yet. And I mean, like you said, you know, if that, if that is the case, then I'm, I'm going to try to help people fight him as best I can. Yeah. You know, but I'm just not seeing it yet. So, however, I will say that one of those little signposts from Trump did actually happen during this week. Right. Mm. So, so we're talking about, you know, the, the roadmap to crazy that we've been going down. We had the immigration debate, the calls for Nazi so I think the next thing we got to talk about is that Trump went after the press again. Yeah. And he went after the press in a way that, that actually it bothers me. So Trump uh, uh, has called the press the enemy of the people. Well, he didn't exactly say the press is the, the enemy of the people. And God, I hate to, I hate to defend him, but it, there's a small difference in language that I think is a little bit important. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it changes your overall point, but, but I do want to clarify. Um, here's his tweet. He says, the fake news media, the failing New York Times, NBC News, ABC, CBS, CNN, is not my enemy. It's the enemy of the American people. Um, and like I said, I don't think that changes a whole lot um, because he basically, he basically just listed all the press that's critical of him <laughs> yeah. and, and said they're the enemy. But he didn't list all the press that's critical of him because, yeah. truthfully, um, even, even the right-wing press has been critical of him at times. In spots, yes. Um, on the other hand, aren't all of those organizations engaging in printing slanted, biased, and sometimes completely untrue news stories. Um, yeah, I, I see your point. Like, you know, fake is, is fake news, the enemy of the people mm. in, in a sense. And I, I, I can't argue with you too much on that as far as, you know, fake news, definitely being negative, being bad for all of us. We've, and, we've talked about it on this show and a hurting, whole lot. hurting our democracy quite a bit. I, so I agree with him there is what I'm saying. Yeah. I think fake news is absolutely the enemy of the people. Right. But I'm not sure that's what that tweet conveys, especially <laughs> when you list out the New York Times, the NBC News, ABC, and, and so on and so forth. Uh-huh. Because make no mistake about it, the, I, the New York Times is not the enemy of the people. <laughs> I mean, Jesus Christ, man, who are you, Stalin? Like, what is it? You know, we want to call him Hitler all the time. You know, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that justifies that. Right. Is when you start making calls like, oh, you know, the press is, is you know, not to be trusted and all that stuff. And and I, there's a kernel of truth there. So I, I empathize and, and I feel you. But you can't call the New York Times the enemy of the people. That is that phrase has got connotations. It's got, you know, trappings to it. And then not only that, but like I said, when I hear it. I instantly think of Stalin. I instantly think of Hitler. Sure. Like, you know. The, and he's got to know what he's doing. 1984, Newspeak. Like, yeah, he has to know. He has to know. The The press needs to be challenged. This is calling for the press to be lynched. Right. And there's a huge difference between those two things. That's a really good point. <laughs> Thanks. And, you know, at, at the same time, though, 
So later in this week, we had the Capitol Gazette shooting. Mm. And so, you know, MSNBC, CNN, they all come out as soon as the Capitol Gazette shooting happens before we know anything and say, well, this is because of Trump's enemy of the people comment. That's why this happened. And that's bogus. So now, thank you, uh, CNN, and for completely undermining the argument where I'm trying to defend you. It doesn't it doesn't completely wash it out at all. Well, I'm and just thank saying, you, Donald Trump, for being such an asshole. Like, yeah. like in truth, I, I think there there could be a little bit of truth to, to both sides. So the Capitol Gazette shooter, I don't even know his name, and I, I'm not paying attention to these guys' names. I don't yeah. think we should even utter their names because right. they're disgusting, despicable human beings. Um, but... He wasn't. He was. He was involved in a disturbance with the Capital Gazette for many, yeah. many years oh, before litigate, Trump yeah. was ever elected. So, so whether whether his words were were the linchpin being pulled and allowing the, the pieces to fall down or not, I I don't think we can really say that. You know, right. I don't think it's fair. This guy was involved in an altercation with the Capital Gazette for many, many years. Yeah. Um. To point at that. And cherry pick it and go, this is the reason he did it, is incredibly dishonest. Well, here's the thing. I I would like to reiterate that that's the conversation we're having now. 20 minutes after that shooting happened, it was Trump said that the press is the enemy of the people. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So like, so when you do that, you are, once again, you are warping that scenario, adding a couple degrees to our poor lobster who is just boiling, you know, beyond recognition now. In the Widening plot. the chasm to Grand Canyon levels. And the problem with this week in particular is that it's happening at an increased rate. <laughs> so we also had Senator Sanders who, who tried to go and have dinner in, in Lexington, Virginia at a restaurant called Red Hen. And uh, she went there and she was asked to leave because <laughs> wait a second, was, wait a second, because this yeah. is this is this is my favorite part of this story. Not only was she asked to leave, the owner of the Red Hen actually gathered the kitchen staff in the back <laughs> and held a vote and voted her off the island, bro. <laughs> yeah. They they turned reality show on the reality show administration. <laughs> like I, I I there's something about that. There is some poetic that I justice. Just love. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Um so this, you know, it it created a huge thing especially on social media. Um I I don't I don't have a problem with it, right? Because I support the right of a private business owner uh mm-hmm. to deny service to people. If she felt like her conscience demanded that she ask, uh, you know, Sarah Huckabee Sanders to leave her restaurant, then I, I'm not going to argue with her at all. I'm glad that she was able to run her business and follow her values. That's However, right. I will not celebrate it. I will not lift her up as a hero or, or even learn her name. I have no idea what her name is. Um, because celebrating that act to me is the road to partisan businesses, mm-hmm. right? So now when, uh, you know, Joe Biden goes into Texas barbecue shack and they ask him to leave, you know, and then very rapidly we find ourselves with Democrat only restaurants, right. Republican only restaurants. And <laughs> right. Honey, don't wear your blue to red lobster. They don't like them <laughs> dims over there. You know, yeah. like it's, 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 it's cool that she got to follow her conscious, but that is the road to us furthering the closing off of ourselves to one another. And I can't, I can't get behind that and celebrate well, I think it. if you go back to our lap, last episode, uh, give me a cake where we talked about masterpiece cake shop. Um, it's very much the same thing. Neither of us celebrate the guy's decision to turn down the cake, right? right, right. That was a terrible decision. We both acknowledge that, but we do acknowledge that it's his right to do so. Yes. Um, because there's something sacred there. And I, and I think seeing people kind of flip flop, 
on this issue on both sides should be an eye opener to us all. Yeah. All the people who aren't involved in politics should be smacked in the face by that hypocrisy. Like, mm-hmm. wait a second, left. You were just saying that this was a blow to freedom of 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 speech and you know yeah, yeah. this was a this was a hard a hard blow to you guys and now you're standing on this restaurant owner turning away someone for her politics now yeah. keep in mind politics is not as legally enshrined as a protected class yeah. as homosexuality as religious affiliation uh, it's very much on a lower level in the courts so right. so flip flopping on on politics now is is absurd to me. Yeah. Um. To to sit there on either side and take the opposite position just makes you look like a dummy. Yeah. If you ask me. No, I mean, again, I, I say I'm glad you can exercise it, but you know, we, why would you but cheer that on? Yeah. I mean, you and don't- in fact, it, it's funny. It happened at a restaurant because I think that that food is one of the ways that that we can come together. Yeah. Right. Instead of taking her employees and saying, hey, should we vote her off the island? They should have sat back there and said, hey, should we make her sit down with us and have a conversation over this meal? Yeah. And if she won't, then we'll kick her out. Yeah. Like that seems like an opportunity. You know yeah. what I'm saying? And maybe it's not her responsibility to teach Sarah Huckabee Sanders, you know, what a what a slime ball she is. Right. At the same time, whose responsibility is it? Well, I don't, I don't know whose responsibility is, but it's not going to get done, you know, unless somebody at some point takes it upon themselves and just goes and does it. You know, it's kind of like it's sort of I don't know if anybody's seen the uh, what's the documentary on Netflix? That's, uh, uh, White Right Meeting White the right. Enemy. What a yeah. brilliant, brilliant film. This this film almost brought me to tears. Absolutely. And it, and it cements everything we've been talking about yeah. on the show to me. So in that documentary, there's an Islamic woman who goes and talks to members of, you know, the major white supremacist organizations in oh, the country. Specifically the people who organized the Charlottesville protest. Yeah. And so you can make the case that it's not her responsibility to go and sit down with them. But I think that she understands that if somebody's got to do it. Somebody needs to do it. Well, and like, the results of that documentary speak for themselves. You had her on camera with the, I believe, the leader of of a you know white supremacist organization saying, "Well, you believe in a white ethno state, correct? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and that means you'll be deporting all the brown people, right? Well, yeah. yeah, and and she looks him dead in the eye and says, "Will you deport me?" And you see him, you see the pain on his face, and he starts to waffle. Right. He can't answer the question. I um, mean, he's like, well, you know, I, I've, I've, I've come to know you. I've come to respect you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you can see him like breaking down his philosophy that he's bought into, um, that him and his people have built up together in the face of one relationship is, is crumbling yeah. on camera. Yeah. And, it's, and it's brilliant to watch. And it, and it happens over and over and over over the course of the documentary to the yeah. point where one of the you know one of the the organizers you know calls her back and says he's left the organization. Yeah. Oh, he was he was the communications director for I think the largest white supremacist organization outside the KKK maybe uh, in the country. I mean, that, that was a major dude. You so know? if if we want to look to to how it's fixed, man, I say Daryl Davis. Uh, you know this. What was her name? I can't remember her name off the top of my yeah, head. But I, uh, I this this documentary these these people are doing it, mm-hmm. and this is how it's done. You humanity humanity will grow in the face of connection, right? right? And it disintegrates in the face of disconnection. And very much so, we're at a point um, where we're fed up and right. we're done with civility, and we're saying, "Go away! Yeah, no. you're not even welcome here." 
And that's where this week really jumped the shark. That's where, you know, we had an event this week where you and I both uh, were calling each other at one o'clock in the morning uh, because we were starting to get worried. And that event is Maxine Waters comment at a rally, uh, you know, on the heels of all these things that we've just talked about. Maxine Waters said, uh, let's make sure we show up wherever we have to show up. And if you see anybody from that cabinet in a restaurant, in a department store, at a gasoline station, you get out and you create a crowd and you push back on them and you tell them they're not welcome anymore anywhere. We've got to get the children connected to their parents. So in, in, in the abstract, if I take it word for word, I don't have a problem with some of what you know Maxine Waters is saying. There. With the message. She's saying... Well, no, I, there are parts of the message that bother me, but we'll get to that in a second. But part of the message is, as a citizen, you're upset, you're fed up with your government officials. We're don't, not going to take it anymore. Yeah, don't be afraid to confront them and voice your concerns as a citizen. And I support that. Mm -hmm. You know, I think you should be able to to speak directly to your elected officials and say, hey, this ain't going to work, chump, you know? Yeah, and I, and I agree with you, but there's definitely a line somewhere, and I think at least legally, we can draw that line at harassment, right? right. I mean, yes, you can you can walk up to your official and, and tell them how you feel, mm -hmm. but there are very clearly legal definitions for harassment. And if you cross those lines, you are committing criminal behavior. No, I agree. And I, I've experienced it uh, to an extent. I mean, I wouldn't call it criminal harassment, but, um, you know, like I said, I'm a maintenance guy for an apartment complex and I've actually been out with my kids and had someone who lived at the complex I work for approach me to complain about the company that I work for. <laughs> and, you know, it's ridiculous. I'm like, hey, man, I'm with my kids. Like, now's not the time, you know? Um, but to me, there's, there is a difference between me, you know, a maintenance technician, and a government official. There's, there's a well, little bit more to that. I would actually say there's, there's no difference between you and the government official, right? Like, what did you do? When you were approached by that family, I mean, by that, by that person with your family. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I asked him to leave. I asked him not to talk to me, you know? And that's exactly what these politicians need to do. If they're not ready to respond, they need to say, excuse me, I'm having a dinner with my family. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe hand them a card to get in touch. Mm -hmm. um, but ask them to go away and stop bothering you, at which point further pestering becomes harassment. Yeah. The same rules that anyone else abides by. Yeah. I mean, you're to, 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 again, to an extent, I mean, there is a difference when you, you, you work for the people, in my opinion. I mean, and you have put yourself in a public situation, you know, you are a public figure in a public situation. Do I want to interrupt anybody's meal? No, not at all. Do I think that we should be harassing people at gas stations? No, not at all. But I think, I guess what the point I'm trying to make is there is a little bit of difference in a citizen approaching their elected official, uh, you know, and because and maybe, they, they owe you some accountability and, yeah. and your officials never off the clock. And so you were able to say like, Hey, I'm off the clock, man. You're not off the clock. Well, I think the difference is too, is that in my head, it is a, a pleasant and, and civil interaction, right? <laughs> but that's not what spun out of what Miss Waters said. So on, on social media, Two things that are very different than her statement quickly emerged. 
And that was a, it's not just limited to government officials. You should approach anybody that has these mm-hmm. hateful Nazi views that, you know, that's just called conservatism. Essentially saying ago. if you're, if you're a conservative, if you're a Republican, you yeah. deserve this treatment. And secondly, Maxine specifically said cabinet members, right? Right. I, I think that got lost in the shuffle yeah. really quickly. No. And, and the problem that we're talking about, way more intense forms of harassment than I would ever consider to be something, you know, a reasonable way to approach an elected official. We're talking about people saying that uh, elected officials need to be kept up all night. You're not going to sleep until the families are reunited. Uh, One uh, lady down in Florida, she was trying to go to the movie theater with her kids. A group of men blocked her way. One of them spit on her. I mean, and and this is being defended. And and the idea is, well, the administration's not being civil, so we don't have to be civil. Woof. I, I look yeah. to the I look to the left as as kind of you know, in that in that classic sense of of the good guy. You know, if no one is defending right and good, you can at least count on the left to be saying we should. Right. Whether their actions are or not, yeah. that's a different story. But but the messaging you can at least count on. Right. You know, respect, civility, goodwill towards men, uh, you know, equal rights for all, et cetera, et cetera. When we're this far down the road, though, I think that's all completely out the window. No, I agree. And I, th- I think that's what scared you and me both, because because that's exactly what I said in the first episode. I've always thought of the Democrats as the good guys. So when they're saying these things, we are in deep, deep trouble, man. Like that, that's no good. So. You know, we were talking about it through text, and then you called me at one thirty. I think it was one thirty in the morning, mm-hmm. the night that Maxine Waters had said this, and we were like, we have to do this episode. We got to do an episode to try to get people to ease back from all that. And and you were you were in a much darker place at that moment uh, with it than I was. You were like, well, maybe maybe we should just have a civil <laughs> war. You know, you were ready to burn it all down. And I was saying, no, man, no, it's cool. I'm not I'm not going to come out in the podcast and say that. You know, we got to tell people to calm down. It's going to be all right. We are going to unite. We're going to get through this. The next day or a couple days after that, you texted me just a simple text and it said Kennedy is retiring. Woof. And I almost threw my phone like 40 feet in the air. Like I was so, I was just like, well, oh my God, what are we going to do? You know. <laughs> so this week, uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy announced that he will be retiring uh, effective at the end of July. And so now Trump has to appoint a new Supreme Court justice. Uh-huh. At at a perfect time when we are unified and and ready to you know move forward, ready uh, to compromise on one of the most important positions yeah. in in the land. Because you know Supreme Court justice picks are almost always contentious, divisive political processes that that just you know pick at those scabs. Because you know again, like I, I often say, the Supreme Court deals with those big broad issues. So we're going to be talking about abortion. We're going to be talking about all these things while we confirm this person and it's going to get nasty. It's going to get real nasty. So why, why does that, why did that scare me so much? Why does that scare you so much? Um, I think, and and you're the expert here, maybe you can clarify, but I see Kennedy as kind of, as kind of that swing, you know, Mm -hmm. that balance. Um, you know, he, he's not necessarily playing the sides, right? Um, what we all expect out of the Trump presidency is to pick a justice and force through a justice that absolutely plays sides yeah. and sits squarely in, in the Republican camp. No, one of the things. So the thing about the Supreme Court is we've had courts that were heavy one way or the other before in the past. 
but you and I haven't in our, in our lifetime, really. I mean, you know, for, for a couple of years there, right at the beginning, but Kennedy has been on the court since I believe 1986 and Kennedy has always been a swing voter. So he could go left, he could go right, you know? And so through all the ups and downs and, you know, turbulence, both sides had a chance, right? So barring that Chief Justice Roberts decides that for the good of the reputation of the court that he is the Chief Justice of, barring him moderating or Trump completely screwing up this pick, which there is precedent for, uh, Nixon uh, appointed one of the most liberal justices in recent memory and Harry Blackman, mm. uh, George Bush, Daddy Bush. Uh, uh, appointed uh, David Souter, who everybody in the world thought was conservative. He got on the bench and was one of the most reliable liberal justices. And, <laughs> you know, but barring him screwing this up, there isn't a swing vote anymore. That's a brave new world. That's one that I, as much as I love the court and I've read about it, I've never really lived under it, you know, mm. and it's, it's a whole new territory for a lot of folks. Yeah. I think the Dems are, are feeling that fear in a very real way and in fact, they're using the same tactics that the Republicans used to block the Merrick Garland appointment. Yeah, or um, they intend to, yeah, yeah. To now try to block Trump's appointment. Right. Um, Which, you know, we're in an election year and uh, hold up, stop the presses. We're not going to confirm anyone you put up. Right. And I think that speaks to something that is exacerbating the whole thing is, is we get into this weird situation where it's like, well, we're going to do it because they did it mm. and, and they started it. So, so this is just kind of us, you know, balancing the scales. We're just getting them back. That I'm, very much is a toddler mentality to yeah, me. Yeah, no, it is. That's fourth grade playground. He started it. I would, I would say fourth grade playground or Congress. So let's, <laughs> so let's, let's look at this for a second. In 2013, the Democrats got really frustrated that, you know, like we said earlier, the Tea Party and the Republicans were obstructing basically everything that Obama was trying to do to the best of their abilities. And it got to a point where, you know, it reached a fever pitch. And finally, Harry Reid, who was then the Senate Majority Leader, um, decided that they were going to repeal the filibuster rule in the Senate. So what that meant was what you had to do was you had to have 60 votes if you wanted to confirm like a Supreme Court justice, because you had to get past a filibuster. And a filibuster is, let's say I've got 51 members of Congress, Democrat, you know, or Senate, sorry, members of the Senate. And I want to pass something. Well, I can pass it with a simple majority unless the minority party invokes a filibuster and starts speechifying. And, and mm-hmm. you know, they just, that's where you see people giving speeches for 48 hours straight <laughs> yeah, right. and stuff. So the way to overcome that, you need 60 votes to overcome a filibuster. Well, Harry Reid said, that's too hard. We can't get anything done. The Republicans are holding us up. So we're just going to, we're going to get rid of the filibuster rule. And it was interesting because McConnell, uh, Mitch McConnell, who was at the time the Senate minority leader, he, you know, railed against it. And in his words, he said, you're going to regret this maybe sooner rather than later. Oof. All right. So fast forward, there's no filibuster rule. Okay. Now, the other thing that happened was in 2016, we were in a presidential election year. Uh, Antonin Scalia died. And Barack Obama wanted to appoint Merrick Garland to take his seat on the Supreme Court. Well, McConnell comes out and, you know, in my opinion, partially motivated by the whole filibuster fiasco a couple years earlier. Right. He's like, well, you know, it's an election year. And it's it's rare that the people get a chance to directly speak on a Supreme Court nominee. So perhaps we should postpone 
the the nominating of a you know somebody for the Supreme Court until after the election, so the people can have a say. <laughs> and the Republicans basically refuse to allow the matter to come before a vote um, until after the election. So what ends up happening? Trump gets to appoint Neil Gorsuch. And now the left feels like a Supreme Court seat has been stolen from him. And it very much so has. Yeah. See, what what we're worried about is, well, they did it to us, so we're going to do it to them. The proper course of action there would have been for McConnell to say, you know, once the Republicans took power, the filibuster is a vital and important rule for our democracy. It gives the minority power, uh, minority party, a check on the majority party. Let's reinstitute the filibuster rule. Bang a rang. Not let's just let's just roll with it, baby. There ain't no filibuster. We can do whatever we want. So just like right here, what McConnell did wasn't right. You know, you don't in the Constitution, the president gets to appoint a Supreme Court justice and it has to be confirmed by the Senate. Fair enough. But there's nothing in there about election year stuff. <laughs> now, the Democrats, the Democrats, after railing about how Merrick Garland's seat was stolen, they want to do the exact same thing in a midterm election year. Yeah. So I guess next year, if another one comes up and there's a dog catcher election somewhere, so what we're going to wait for that. Yeah, what does that leave? If if midterms are off the table, election years are off the table, there's a very small window now where you're able to actually appoint your justice. It, yeah. it, it starts looking real crazy real quick. No, and I think, and it dovetails back with, you know, what Maxine Waters said. It, you know, the, the argument is, Again, the Trump administration and Trump himself are being incivil. So if to oppose him properly, we have to stop being civil. That's eye for an eye territory there. And we know that makes the whole world blind. Uh, not to resort to platitudes, but I think it's it's very real here. Look, we've already lost the filibuster rule that was an important check and balance on what was going on. What else do we stand to lose by by normalizing Trumpian tactics in politics. Yeah. I mean, this is where things start to get really, really scary for me, man. Civility is not complacency. It's not even non-aggression. Um, we can argue civilly. We can be angry civilly. We can express outrage in a civil manner. Uh, I stand by that. Um, as far as I'm concerned, Trump tossed civility out the window, but... I like I said, man. I expect the Dems to champion it and wield it back as a weapon. No, you're you're absolutely right. Trump hasn't been civil since he entered the political arena, if if he ever has been in his entire <laughs> life. To be honest with you, and and this old maxim, you know that that we need to fight fire with fire. My question is, if you are matching the ugliness and instability of Donald Trump, what are you achieving in the bigger picture? I mean, so we just, you know, we just talked about Reed and McConnell locking the Senate into this like death spiral of you did it first. So now I'm going to do it worse, you know? And, and, and it's like one upsmanship. And meanwhile, they're destroying the Senate. You're, you're not gaining anything. And I think it's the same thing with Trump. What does matching Trump mean for the country besides the slippery slopes and the unintended consequences that, you know, all that stuff can lead to? It means that he won. It means that he has reshaped politics in this country in his own image. It means that the Trump presidency isn't going to be this little hiccup that we all experienced in our, our messy march towards progress and then we overcame, but it's going to be the, the first shot in the fall of America. I mean, if, if we descend to that level. Hello, folks. So you're probably wondering why I'm interrupting. Well, here's the deal. 
Uh, it's a holiday week. We got the fourth coming up. And on top of that, <laughs> Beanzo is still pretty pissed after last week's episode. So we decided to deal with that. We would record a double length episode. So you're going to get the first half this week. That's what you just listened to. Hopefully you loved it. And then we're going to come back next week, hopefully after we've wooed Beanzo back into the fold. I still have the slide whistle. He really liked that thing. <laughs> yeah, hopefully that'll do it. And uh, we'll give you the conclusion of the episode. So everybody take care and we'll see you next week. Taylor Swift. Hey folks, I'm Sense, one half of the Sense of Theory podcast. I'd like to take a second to thank you for listening. Uh, it's your time and attention that makes this show worthwhile. Uh, we do the show for you and our listeners. Um, I'd ask you to leave a review, good or bad, on iTunes. Uh, come check us out on the various social media channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can find the links uh, in the description to the show. And uh, if you want to reach out with a comment, uh, joke, uh, funny anecdote, uh, you want to call me an idiot, uh, sense and theory podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, thanks again, folks, and we'll see you next week.